All right. Mark chapter 5. You guys turn over there in your Bibles. Did you hear that first part? All right. All right. Good deal. I want to talk about freedom today. Freedom's a big word, so uh, let's define it uh, before we get into the text. Defined, uh, freedom is the power or right to act, speak or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint, not subject to domination, control, or enslavement. Freedom is a huge word, all right? Uh, It denotes and connotes so many different feelings, right? A lot of us have different reactions when we see the word freedom, all right? Uh, It could be a big word that describes a whole nation's struggle for liberation. It could be a small word that you use when you get off on Friday after work after a really long week, right? TGIF, I'm so glad. Free, free for the weekend. Uh, The word makes it into a lot of songs. You probably have some favorites, whether it's Pharrell, who I think teaches a class here at NYU, uh, or George Michael, any uh, Freedom fans there? Beyonce, Jason Mraz. Freedom is a big word that makes it into all kinds of conversations, music, art, and politics, etc. Spiritually, freedom is also a very big and deep word. And what I want to get into before we get into the text of Mark 5 is to understand the impact that Jesus is making when he starts to spiritually free people. And in order to know that, we have to go back in time to the Old Testament and understand his role in helping people to be free. The prophetic books like Isaiah, this is just a few that I'll show you today, talk about the Messiah freeing captives from darkness. You can see the different references here in Isaiah 42, to open the eyes that are blind, to free the captives from prison, to release them from the dungeon of those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 49, uh, to come out to those in darkness, to be free, to go from lost to found. Isaiah 61, The Lord has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. You know, we've been studying these first four chapters of Mark leading up to today is a fulfillment of all of these prophecies. For hundreds of years, the Jews were waiting for their Messiah to come and realize these these words that they had heard their whole lives. Freedom. I want to know freedom. And of course, what they expected was some military leader to come and free the people and declare war and start a revolution that would maybe be violent, but would end up freeing them from the clutches of oppression that they had dealt with from generation to generation. Now, Jesus doesn't come with a sword, but he comes with something much more powerful to free them from the inside out. All right, let's jump into our text, Mark chapter 5, verse 21. You guys with me here? Uh, Before we get into the text we're reading, remember that up to this point, Jesus has just healed a man. He just freed a man from demon possession. So already Jesus is doing this thing of fulfilling the prophecies of freeing those that were in darkness. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by that lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter's dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. 
because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? It's a big crowd, Jesus. Relax, all right? Verse 32, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Be freed. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He didn't let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? Child isn't dead, just asleep. But they laughed at him. He put them all out took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's stop there. Appreciate the end there. Jesus uh, just being sensitive to the girl that was just dead. She's probably hungry. She's had a long journey. Let's make sure to give her something to eat. I love Jesus. All right, a lot of similarities in these two stories of liberation that, we're, that we've just read, these two women. And uh, I want to list a few of those for you so you can see what's happening as Mark is telling the stories, passing along this journey of Jesus and fulfilling these prophecies from hundreds of years earlier. 12 years. Of course, the word 12 means something in the Bible. Uh, if you're into that sort of thing, you've got the 12 tribes, the 12 brothers, the 12 apostles here. You've got 12 years bleeding and a 12-year-old, all right? There's a lot happening there. Also, uh, there are people who are pleading for Jesus, not just for physical healing, but this word salvo and susthen, and there's other words there that are translated from the Aramaic and the Greek, mean to save. So what they are asking is, and what the dad is asking for the daughter, please save her. Please save me. So it's not just a physical healing that is being asked for here, but salvation. Also, uh, both there are situations where people are falling at Jesus' feet. Uh, both are called daughter by Jesus. Both make Jesus as a high priest ritually unclean when he contacts them physically. One has been bleeding. That's an Old Testament. There's like 11 different rules that prevent any kind of touching when a woman is bleeding in any kind of situation. And then also, the young lady was dead. And a priest is rendered unclean in the Old Testament law by touching a corpse. Jesus had physical contact with both of them. And then also, there's a fear that's talked about in both of these situations in verse 33 and 36 that is overcome, which is, I think, the key common denominator in these two stories, and that's faith. Faith, believing. Verse 34 and 36, you see it. To the woman, he says, your faith has healed you. To the father, don't be afraid, just believe. 
See, Jesus is compelled, I believe, by the faith of these two situations, the dad and the woman, and it's faith that for us will bring us freedom. Faith. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, we have sort of a spiritual definition of what faith is. Now, faith is a confidence in what we hope for and an assurance about what we don't see. We love to be sure when we see something. We love to know it, touch it, feel it, and then we're certain of it, right? This goes counter to our understanding, counter to our intuition, counter to our logic to believe in something that we can't see. The spiritual confidence that Jesus talks about here, it actually goes up and down quite a bit in the pages of Scripture and different people, all right? Uh, Jesus is often frustrated. He says, like the most common thing he says to his disciples is, you of little, all right, little faith. But there's other times, you of big faith, like with Peter in the situation where he says, oh, you're the Messiah. It goes up and down. You ever feel like your faith is down, and then it's up and then down? You feel like that? You're like, you're like the U.S. economy, right? Going up and down, right? Sometimes you're not sure why. What's the trigger for that? Faith can go up and down. The good news is it can go up. The bad news is we feel things, and we get discouraged, and things happen in our life that can bring our faith down. And that's what we're talking about today. I love in Mark 9, a man says, uh, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And there's this idea that sometimes we believe like enough, like enough to get in the door, but like help me with the difference because I'd like to have faith that's way up there. I need that. Help me. I believe, but help me in what I don't believe in. Maybe that's how you're feeling today. Where are you at on the faith spectrum? Do you come in here today feeling very high up on your spiritual swagger, all right? Anything can happen. God is amazing. Earlier on, uh, Josh was saying, you know, I I don't know if some of us had a hard time getting here, right? And I heard some grunts and groans, and I also heard someone go, I had a great time getting here. It was in that direction. That was pretty good. A lot of faith in that area of the room right there, all right? So we all come in in a different place. Maybe, maybe your faith is high. Man, God Almighty, he can do whatever, whatever I'm going through, whatever I'm hurting with. He has a plan. He's ready to go. I trust it regardless of what I'm seeing. Maybe that's where you're at. Or perhaps you're on the other end of the spectrum or somewhere in between where there's a creeping faithless fear that's bringing you down. Maybe you thought today, man, I'm just going to come to church and whatever the message is, that's going to be my answer. This, this, this sermon's going to be so good. My faith's going to be 100% when I walk out. Don't put that kind of pressure on me. <laughs> that's between you and God, all right? I'll do my best, though. Uh, I tell you, I've been feeling it lately. I've been feeling the challenges series of different heavy situations either I'm hearing about or advising or involved with. And, you know, that kind of hurt can wear down your faith. Can I get an amen on that? So you sort of have to have a plan. You have to know yourself well enough that when the faith starts to drop, you know what's going to help you get it back. You know what I'm talking about? And that's what we're talking about today. I got with, uh, I got with Josh Rothberg a few days ago. I love my time with Joshua. Joshua, the word Joshua, the Hebrew means he who saves. So sometimes when I get with Joshua, I put the pressure on him. You're going to save me now. You're going to help me out. It was his birthday. You know, whenever I think of Valentine's Day, I don't think of Valentine's Day. I think of Josh Rothberg's birthday, right? That's he's important to me. And uh, we're spending time a few days ago, and I'm telling about some of the Oscar films that I'm trying to catch up on, right? One of the Academy Awards, does anyone know? Next weekend? Okay. A few people know. And uh, so I'm trying to catch up, 
and we're talking about some of the films. And I, I normally don't have a ton of time to watch like several films in a row, but I have been lately. And uh, he knows that I've been carrying a little bit of extra emotional uh, load lately. And he asked me a question. He says, John, are you watching all those films to escape some of the stuff you're feeling? Like, man, why do people have to know me in the church like that? It's embarrassing. Where is Josh? Oh, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Can we talk about something else? Yeah, if you see me watching a bunch of movies in a row or playing a lot of guitar alone in my room or bargain shopping, you need to ask me how I'm doing, okay? <laughs> Just getting really open here. I, I dragged Ross on a, on a two-and-a-half-hour bargain shop the other day. Man, Macy's last act is like my, my Achilles heel. You know, I think the world encourages escape. You know, watch all the movies you can. Spend all the money you can. Come on, we love it. The world loves it. Loves it. Drown yourself in it. Man, New York City loves to capitalize on the pain that we feel, right? Diners and bars and malls and clubs love their regulars who come in and are escaping all the sorrows that they're feeling in life, right? The world encourages us to stay down. To give up, to let our fears win, and that there's a glass ceiling that you can't poke through. So why try? Just stay where you're at. Stop trying so hard. You're just going to reach a dead end. You're just going to reach pain. You know, if you're a woman or a person of color, you're not going to be able to break through. So why try? You ever hear the world say that? That if you're profiled poor, that's all you're going to be. Why are you going to try to be something better than that? That if you've been labeled, then the identification can become permanent, whatever that label may be. So we're fighting those messages from the world, fighting that, that ceiling that the world wants to put, the feeling of just stop whatever you're dreaming about, just stay in your place and don't try to break through. You know, after suffering a trauma of any kind, we can be trapped in a victimized mentality, and it can corrode uh, that faithful freedom that we're talking about. You know, uh, I looked at some uh, experts in the field, in psychology and in uh, some different mental health experts. And some of the things you see, uh, like Matthews talks about, this idea that there are signs for people who take on the victimized mindset where they've suffer suffered a trauma in some way, but then they project that trauma on all the fears that they have in life. And it can become a manifestation, a thing, a condition that they carry. And it can be very painful. Some of the signs are people feel like everything is uniquely hard for them. All right? Uh, no one understands their plight, their pain. Only them. It's only them that goes through this. There's something, there's some resistance in the universe that prevents them from getting what they want. I've tried everything. Nothing works. And there's a paranoia about relationships, hard to trust. Right? These are some of the signs that they say people can fall into with a victimized identity. Uh, Firestone talks about uh, part of the assumption in these uh, folks who struggle with this, assume that the world should be fair. There's an assumption. It is funny. And actually, Firestone talks about it as a childish projection that we assume in our adult phase of life that life's supposed to be fair? What? That's the way the psychologist talks about it. And then Matthews, or actually, this is not Matthews, somebody else, but I, I must have repeated the name. But the paradox of victimhood, in that sometimes those people who experience a trauma and then live in this sort of place of victimized identity end up drawing back to 
potential people who could harm them because that's what's familiar to them. There's a lot of trauma therapists who are trying to sort of help break that cycle in the different people that wrestle with this. You know, when I look back at the text of the Bible that we read, and I look at Jairus, this desperate dad with his dying daughter, you know, he should be at home in this moment, right? Like, she's dying, and, and he's not there bedside. He's so desperate, but he's hanging on to a thread that there's a chance that Jesus can save her. So instead of being home when she might take her last breaths, he's out begging Jesus to come. And, then, and that's awesome, right? He, he's not allowing himself. He's like, I believe. And that's what gets Jesus' attention. And so when Jesus decides, he hears a story, it says earlier in the text that Jesus decided to go with him. So you imagine you're the dad. This is your last thread of hope for your daughter. This is your little 12-year-old girl. When Hebrew girls hit 12 and one day, that's when they're a woman. She's on the brink of the, the rest of her life. You can imagine all that the dad is feeling. But he goes on faith, and he goes and finds Jesus, and Jesus says yes, and he's probably got a glimmer of hope that's even getting brighter as Jesus is walking towards where he lives. And then what happens? They're interrupted. There's this commotion. There's this drama. Somebody touched Jesus. Jesus, who cares who touched you? My daughter's dying. Let's go. And Jesus is like, hang on. Does anyone know who touched me? And, and Jared, I mean, if I'm Jairus, I'm like, listen, I know you're Jesus. Don't mean to be rude, but we have to go. And then he finally figures it out. It's the, the woman who was bleeding. And they're having this conversation. And your faith has healed you. And Jesus is doing his thing. He's totally calm. He's totally composed. He's not rushed. But if I'm dad, hurry up. Let's go. Less words, more walking. If I'm dad, I'm tempted to feel in those moments that it's going to be someone else's fault. I've done everything in my power to help my daughter, but now, if Jesus doesn't make it on time, what happens? You could have saved her. Because then what happens is the news comes in. She's dead. We don't get a commentary on what he's feeling. But as a father, I could imagine. You can imagine, right? You know, it's like when our daughter was six years old, she cut her foot real bad, and we had to take her to the hospital. And, you know, we were in Hell's Kitchen at the time, and I'm thinking, 15 blocks. How am I going to get 15 blocks up? And at first, I'm like, the ambulance is going to take too long to get all the way down. It's 4.30, 5 o'clock rush hour, right? I mean, can't do a cab because they're, all, they're doing their cab shifts at that time, 4.30, 5 o'clock. We're not going to be able to get a cab. If you've ever wondered or if you're visiting in New York what happens between 4.30 and 5, you're just going to be totally ignored. That's usually what happens. But you have Uber now and Juno and Via and all the lifts and everything, so hopefully you get taken care of. But we were trying to figure out how to get to the hospital. Ambulance wasn't going to work. Cab wasn't going to work. I couldn't carry her that far that fast. So we got on the M11 northbound bus. The M11. What? You guys have attitudes with the M11? Wow, I got a boo for the M11, all right? That was, that's a first. I like public transportation in New York, but in this situation, uh, it, it was less than ideal. And so I'm carrying her into the bus, and on top of everything that's happening, and she's bleeding in her foot, no one gives me a seat to sit down with my daughter. And I'm going, wow. Wow. I, I, I'm feeling it as a dad. I feel like, wow, this is, this is intense. I just moved here. 
Man, New Yorkers are so selfish. Man, slowest bus ever. Man, and then we get to the hospital. Hospitals are so disorganized. I start hating on everything. Man, our insurance is terrible. Man, why do we move here anyway? You see how quickly it starts to go down? Man, I was feeling what Jairus might have felt, just an inkling of what he might have felt. It would have been easy to let victimization control him. And he gets this news that she's gone. Man, I wouldn't have blamed him if he totally just went off. Ah, I did everything I could. Of course, Jesus, he knows. He knows what's about to go down. Think about the bleeding woman. Didn't she try everything? You know, we're feeling for the dad, but hey, hang on. Didn't she try everything? It says she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she, she went broke. Isn't that, isn't that crazy how our world works? If, if we get a condition, we get cancer, we, we pay for it physically, but then we also pay for it, right? Like, like costly, money, value, time. Like, it's like, man, this thing just happened to me and now I'm paying money for it. Like, that, there's something that doesn't make sense there. It can easily start to get to you. So easy for the woman to give in to a victimized mentality. But you know what? She hears that Jesus is coming to town. And instead of sitting in self-pity or instead of going down that road or instead of saying, I've tried everything and I've run out of money and there's no hope left, she hangs her hope on the Messiah. And she, she's, she wants to be discreet about it, right? She doesn't want to make a big deal. Already the bleeding, that, that's already too public. And she, she's considered ostracized from society and the way the Jewish law works, she can't connect with people. She, she's had it rough for 12 years. 12 years, but she hangs on to the hope. And she probably heard at this point there was different superstitions and some out of faith and some out of uh, sort of the magical culture that was around that if you had touched someone with power, even just their clothes, that maybe you could get a healing from it. That's how good her faith was. I just touched the edge. There are Old Testament scriptures that talked about it too. If you just touched the tassel, then it would cleanse you, right? These are two people that I admire in their faith. They had every reason to either give up or give up hope or, or just give in to the victimized mentality, but they didn't. How about us? How easy is it uh, for us to get down that road, the victimized mentality, here in New York when things get really rough? What are your triggers? You know, write them down. What triggers you? What gets you going down that road? What gets you blame shifting? What gets you pointing fingers? What gets you upset? Is it, is it something at work? You know, sometimes you're totally cool outside of work, but something about being in the confines of that job gets your blood boiling, right? You're on extra alert, right? You're normally at a 10, maybe, but then you walk into work, you're at a 60, and then boss says something that's discouraging, and you go to an 80, and you're getting closer and closer to explosion. Anyone been there? The bill's getting bigger, right? Maybe it's a money thing, and you're just like, you feel the simmer, and the volcano's growing inside, right? Maybe if you're a student, everyone else is getting A's in the class and you feel like you're working the hardest, but you're not getting the grade. Teacher must hate me. That's gotta be what it is, right? The victim mentality. Everyone's been going out. Everyone's going on vacations. Everybody's going out. Wow, every week I hear about someone going on an awesome trip. Hawaii, that's great for you. Right? Wow. So, again, let me see all the pictures. Send me all the pictures. 
delete, 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 delete. Maybe it's the news. Isn't that funny? It's like, it could be an addictive, like, chemical drug. We know it's destroying us, but we, we can't stop watching it. More news. I want to hear all the bad. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know what it is. It, it could be not just the emotional. Maybe it's physical. Maybe it is. It's like what we were talking about earlier with these two people in the text, that your body is doing something that it hasn't done before. You have a condition or illness or something that's really seriously hurting you. And I would say this, in these situations, and sometimes, and we talked about this before, uh, in the Jewish culture, they would say, well, if you're suffering, then it must be a sin. And Jesus is like, scrap that. That's not, that's not right. See, the sin is not the circumstance. That's, that's life, right? Life happens, the rain and the sun on the evil and the good. We know those scriptures, right? But the sin is allowing the circumstance to take away our faith. I'm not saying it's easy. It's hard to keep your faith in some circumstances. But you can easily go there where stuff starts to get hard, and then you say, you know what? God must have forgotten about me. He's busy. He's so busy, he's helping all these other people, he must have forgotten about me in his plan. Because I'm over here, and I don't get it. And we start letting fear in, and then that fear can control us. We lose that freedom. You know, I uh, heard about a, a great story that I have to share uh, you know, we're thinking about freedom, and we're also in Black History Month, and I, I just got so inspired uh, by this man, Robert Smalls. And in South Carolina in 1862, I'm sure a few of you guys know the story, a 23-year-old man and a small crew of uh, fellow slaves decide to uh, slip a heavily armed Confederate cotton steamer off the dock under their control, all right? All right. And they get out in the water. This is the, the CSS planter, the ship. And uh, they had told their family, meet us at this rendezvous point. And so they're sailing uh, through the water. And they pick up the family. And there's 17 of them now on this ship. And they start navigating through the harbor, all right? And, uh, you know, Smalls actually puts on, like, the captain's hat, all right? And the uniform, and he had worked that boat, and so he knew what the captain's mannerisms were and how he sounded. He knew the code signals when they had to go through the checkpoints. So when they get to the two different Confederate checkpoints, Smalls, with his hat on, does the signals, and they let him through. And he keeps going through the seas, heading north, trying to get to freedom. And he goes through Fort Sumner, was the big one, big Confederate checkpoint. And then he gets to the Union blockade, all these ships, and he raises up the white flag. And they bring him in, and they go, oh, wow, what are you doing? And he's like, man, I'm getting free. I just sailed to freedom. He successfully defected all 17 black passengers right into the north and right into freedom. Pretty exciting, right? It doesn't stop there, though. Uh, Smalls didn't have the, uh, the $800 that he had been trying to save up for many years to purchase his family's freedom. Um, but Congress, when he got up into the north, they bought that boat off of him for 1500 bucks, which is the equivalent of $35,000 today, all right? So now Smalls is Biggs, all right? He's like changing it up, all right? Biggs Smalls. Uh, so then, it doesn't stop there. Biggie Smalls enlists, all right? He's the first, the original, the OG. He enlists... He enlists into the Northern Army, right, to join the Union's battle against the South. 
And guess where he gets a job in the military? Piloting the same boat. The SS Planter, all right? Which he knew so well. There are naval records say that he was part of 17 military actions. And one of them was to attack Fort Sumner. The same one that he got through earlier. And during one of the attacks, the captain of the ship, he was the pilot, the captain of the ship got so scared that he was found hiding by the coal area. Just hands over his head. And so what did Smalls do? He took control of that ship. He became the captain of that ship, helped the the crew to survive. And then after he came back, they heard about what happened. They made him a captain. All right. And he became the highest black paid soldier in the war. All right. Now he's really rolling. Right. Then after the war, he decides, I'm going to go into politics. All right. So he ended up serving 12 years in the U.S. House of Representatives for, guess where, South Carolina. (laughs) Whoa, right? Not only that, he bought his slaver's mansion. Back in Beaufort, South Carolina. Bought it. So I own this now. All right? And it's incredible. He let the slave master's wife, Jane Bond McKee, Snopes actually checked this whole story out. This is legit. He let her live in the house with them until she died. Whoa. Biggie Smalls, the original. (laughs) Respect. Respect. James 1 reminds us, talking about freedom. Where do we get our spiritual freedom? Where can we get that kind of boldness in our faith? Well, it says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. In verse 25, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. You know, the world, I put it like this, the world enables frivolity, but the word empowers freedom. You just got to get rid of the L in your life, all right? World wants us to escape into sort of mind-numbing practices. Just a life of procrastination, a life where there's no ambition to make a mark to make the world better. But just to get in line, become part of the system, and just roll with it. And Jesus is like, "Uh uh-uh. No. We will have a spiritual revolution in my day. I'm not talking about a violent revolution, a spiritual revolution. We will be empowered by the word of God, God's word, the scriptures. You know, too often we can glance over, pass over, fly by the power of the word of God. We've been talking about this more and more, and we're going to keep talking about it because we want to have a culture that's infected and injected with the power of the word of God. That it, that it makes its way into our conversation. That is where we get our truth. That is our compass, our north star, guiding us in every decision that we make. And the only way the word of God is going to get there is if we're reading it all the time. And we're digesting it and debating it. You say, did you say debating it? Yes, I said debate it. Not every time do I open the word do I fully understand it. And sometimes, shocker, I don't even know if I agree with it. And so I do what my fellow Jews did 2,000 years ago. I try to get in circles, whether it's circles of experts online or circles of my friends here in the church, and I say, what do you think about this passage? We can't be afraid to debate the passages. 
Why? Because God knows that we're going to have issues with it, but he wants us to test this in him. He said, come on, test me. I'm going to prove it to you. Not, not with a malicious heart, but I want to know. You know, when I'm in the university like this, the university setting, I can't help but think about my days in university a very long time ago. And, you know, when I was there, I was on the debate team, right? University of Southern California debate. And so all we did every day, all day, is get taught and trained how to argue with everybody that we met. Great skill, right? Not till you get married. <laughs> then you have to unlearn everything that you learn, right? So when I, but I approach the scriptures with that heart of, I want to know the truth. Is that your heart? I'm not saying I'm the example. I'm a critic. I'm a skeptic by nature. But God continues to prove me every single point. True, true, true. That's got to be your heart. Read it, test it, debate it, digest it. Go full immersion into the Bible. And it says here in James 1, if you do, you'd be blessed in what you do. That doesn't mean automatically you're going to make a lot of money and be like Biggie Smalls, 1862. It means you'll be blessed, meaning that God will be with you. His presence will be with you. His guiding light will be with you. His morality, his compass will be with you. Full immersion, committed. You probably heard me say this before, and I heard this from an old preacher. He said, you know, in a plate of bacon and eggs, the chicken is involved, but the pig is committed. Let, let it marinate. Yeah, you laid an egg. Good job. You know, you're involved. You know, you're, you're going to be here tomorrow. Awesome. You're involved. You're connected. You're engaged a little bit. Yeah, you, you come to stuff when it's convenient. That's great. That's awesome. You read when you can. You laid an egg a couple times. Good. All right. You're involved. The pig gave up his life for your bacon and eggs. <laughs> I know it's a stupid analogy, but it does make a difference. You get that distinguishing factor going. Committed. Full in. You, you know what that looks like in your life. When, when you're like, you know, this is hard, but I'm going to do it anyway. Arlene and uh, Al both talking about Thelma, our dear sister, who's been battling cancer. She's been full in for years. Just immersed you know, it's crazy about Thelma because she'd been fighting cancer for a while, doing chemo and experimental treatment. When she's in the fellowship in the church, you would never know it. She comes in with this attitude of, I, I am conquering everything. Smiling, how are you doing, is what she asks. One of the most selfless people I know. That's your sister, Thelma Garvin. You'd never know what she's going through. And I know a lot of the sisters, Danita, everyone's in there helping her. Arlene uh, read her Psalm 34 in the hospital yesterday, just reminding her, you know, uh, you know, he will save you out of your troubles. Spiritual freedom, right? Read her in verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. He delivers them. You know, Thelma is not controlled by victimization. She trusts the word, not the world. I pray we can honor her as a hero as she fights, keep praying, as she fights this battle. You know, uh, I believe our Messiah, as we talked about earlier, he's willing to do the dirty work. He's willing to get in there. And uh, I love that he's an example himself of when things got really hard. He doesn't lose his faith, although he wrestles, 
He hangs on to that glimmer of hope, doesn't allow his situation to create that victimized mentality, but he fights. He fights for his faith. And he makes it all the way to the cross. And the very hardest moments of that journey, he decides to keep going. I challenge a church today, no matter how hard it gets, you decide, keep going. The bleeding woman, tough, tough situation. Glimmer of hope in Jesus, kept going. That dad fighting for the life of his daughter, glimmer of hope in Jesus, decided to keep going. Whatever it is you're going through today, decide to keep going. You hear me? Keep going. Don't give up. Keep your options open. Stay in the light. Jesus will be your deliverance. Let's pray at this time through our Lord Jesus for communion. Our God in heaven, we honor you. We revere you. We admire you. We glorify you. We lift you up. We say your name again and again in this place to remind even ourselves that you are the most high, the most powerful, the omnipotent, the omniscient, everywhere at one time. And God, you know our heart. You know our mind. You know our thoughts. You know our struggles. Many of us in here right now are struggling, struggling in our faith, struggling with circumstance, struggling with tough things in our lives. Help us, Father, to trust you in it. We know these will become the stories that we tell later on, the stories where it got really hard. We're not going to tell the stories when it was easy. God, remind us that sometimes when we're in it, when we're in the hardest times, we'll become the greatest stories of faith. Thank you for reminding us through this text of the powerful, courageous, faithful woman who bled 12 years, tried everything, got no comfort from the world, spent all she had, but hung on to Jesus to the dad that did everything he could to keep his daughter alive. God, thank you for his faith. Thank you that Jesus was moved by their faith, and thank you that right now he's moved by ours. Thank you for sending your son to the earth to die for us, to suffer an excruciating death on the cross, and then raise three days later. We believe in this unfathomable thing because you give us faith that is certain even though we don't see it. Thank you. Thank you for liberating us from the inside out. We pray all this for freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.